Good morning, everyone. Last week, we studied a passage in the, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, and this is the story of the healing of the paralytic. And as we were studying this passage, we tried to understand it within the overall context, purpose, and message of the Gospel of Mark, and ask ourselves, what contribution does this passage make to the overall book? Now, the Gospel of Mark begins right away with a purpose statement, namely, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus. And then a little bit later on, a few verses down the road, it says that Jesus began to preach the Gospel and that the kingdom of God is near. And so as we were studying this passage, we came to the conclusion that our passage of the healing of the paralytic makes the contribution to understand Jesus' gospel that is preaching this new creational kingdom foremost in priestly terms. Or with other words, that he is preaching a kingdom that is also a temple, a temple kingdom. Now today, I would like to continue our exploration in asking two questions. The first question I would like to ask and then answer is, is this a new idea? So the idea of priesthood, priestly kingdom, temple kingdom, is this a new idea? Jesus comes up here on the way as he's doing his ministry? Or is this something that has been there before. An idea maybe that has been there from the beginning. And the way I would like to do this, to answer this first question, is to do a brief survey of six stories or larger units. This is creation, the garden, story of Abraham, the exodus, the life of Jesus, and then the new creation. Now, of course, you might be thinking, this is a lot of material. This is almost the whole Bible that we are looking at here this morning. Well, we are not doing a helicopter view. We are just doing a satellite view on these passages to see the, the most outstanding landmarks that hopefully help us to see whether this theme is new, Jesus came up here on the way, or whether there is something that is kind of in the DNA of scripture. Well, let's begin with the first a story with, with creation. In Genesis 1, God creates a material universe. But I suggest he's not just creating a material universe for a material purpose, but he's creating a universe for a spiritual purpose. And there are two indications that lead me to understand it that way. The first one is that when he creates the stars, he says that they are to mark time, days, and years, and seasons. And these are not the, the seasons like spring and summer and winter or something, but rather these are festival seasons, ritual, cultic seasons of a calendar. And then second... When God finishes his work, he sanctifies the seventh day. So there is the pattern of six plus one is seven. And with that, he introduces the basic time unit or time clock 
into the universe he's creating. Around that seven revolves the whole festival calendar. And so that leads me to believe that he creates a physical universe, a material universe, that of course can sustain material things like life, but actually it is a, more like a temple, which then in the season revolves around him in worship. When you look at the second story at the garden, there we focus on a very small area of this universe he created in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 2, we zoom in here on a small area. We can notice that there is a tripartite um, distinction or, or zoning. So we talk about the Garden of Eden. So the garden is actually not Eden, but the garden is adjacent to Eden which is a mountain. On this mountain, from there comes a river that flows through the garden, this wonderful garden, and then flows into the world, into the untamed wilderness. So we have here three zones. We have here this mountain where God dwells, and then the garden where the first human couple is supposed to be, and then the untamed wilderness. Now God creates the first human couple to cultivate and keep that garden. Now, this is an interesting formulation because this specific combination of Hebrew words, cultivate and keep it, occurs later on in the book of Numbers when, when Moses gets a revelation about what the priesthood and the Levites are supposed to do. So, this is a distinctively priestly activity to cultivate and keep, to protect the area from intrusion, and at the same time, when you think of Genesis 1 with subdue the whole world, is to extend this garden more and more so that this temple area expands into the untamed wilderness. Well, let's look at the story of Abraham. Now, there we need to think a little bit in different categories because this is the story of a man and his family living a life as a migrant. But we can discern very quickly that there are distinctive priestly things that are happening there. Abraham is not building a temple or anything magnificent like this, but he's creating sacred sites for worship. He's creating an altar and, and worships there, calls on the name of the Lord. Several times is that mentioned. Then he also performs priestly activities. For instance... He intercedes. When God plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God acts as an intercessor for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in another story, he mediates between the king Abimelech and, and God in the city of Gerau where he stayed for a while. So he's the in-between between this king and God. And then most significantly, I think, he brings sacrifices. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. He is about to sacrifice his own son. But bringing sacrifice, performing that, is a priestly activity. Well, now if we fast forward to the Exodus story, there I think it is most obvious, the theme of priesthood and temple or sacred space. Because after all, the nation of Israel is called to be in Exodus 19, to be a holy nation, 
and a royal priesthood. But there are more interesting things to discover. So for instance, when the people come to Mount Sinai, God asks them, or actually asks Moses to, to be the kind of fence or separation on the foot of the mount, where the people are and the altar is. And then ask Moses to come up with the elders halfway to the mountain, and then only Moses can go to the top. So again, there's this tripartite separation of a very holy place where only one person can go, and then another place where a few can go, and then a third place where the masses are. And this pattern is then repeated in the, in the tabernacle. So in this fenced area, you have the area where the altar is and, and people can come to bring a sacrifice. But then there's this tent where only a few people can go. And in within the tent, there is a place called the holy place and the most holy place. And in this most holy place, only one person can go as well. And individually, Moses is doing many things Abraham has been doing. So he intercedes. Twice, at least, when God tries, or not tries, but thinking of destroying the Israelites because of their unfaithfulness, he intercedes for the people that God is relenting. He's also mediated between Pharaoh and God. And he brings sacrifices. He brings the sacrifices to initiate and officiate the covenant. Well, we jump forward very fast again on our satellite view, come to the life of Jesus, and that's what we explored last week. Jesus as acting as high priest. Forgiving sins, getting involved in clean and unclean. But Jesus is also doing more. On the cross, he intercedes for the people who mock him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And after all, he brings his sacrifice, well, namely himself on the cross. I didn't talk too much about temple last week, even though in this passage we looked at in Mark 2, it is implied that Jesus is in the temple. But I didn't talk too much. But in the Gospel of John, we find several passages that show that Jesus is the temple. In, in, in John 1, it says... The word became flesh and dwelled among us. It literally tabernacled or templed among us. Then in John 2, he says, well, destroy this temple and I will build it up in, in three days again. Talking about his own body. And then in John chapter 4, when he is with his disciples in the upper room... Um, he tells them here in chapter 14, just let me read me this quick teach, 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So here again, it's implying that there is a temple, an invisible temple that Jesus is building. 
Well, and then finally, new creation. Which is also in the New Jerusalem, and which is also, again, a garden. There we have an interesting formulation in Revelation um, 21 and 22. Namely, it says that there is no temple because God and the Lamb are the temple. So the idea is that there is this new creation, the new Jerusalem, this garden is the new temple. That the whole area is the temple. And interestingly, not everyone has access to this temple because it's only the people in the book of life can be part of that. And everything clean, unclean or evil is not allowed to come into this area. Well, now, we have done a very, very quick <laughs> review of these large Bible passages, but I think it becomes clear that the, that the idea of a priestly kingdom, of, of a temple kingdom, is not new. That actually, it was there right from the beginning. And it was something God always intended to happen, and that Jesus, when he's preaching the new creational kingdom, is actually bringing into effect. Well, this leads us then now to the second question, but before I just want to repeat one observation we have made, namely that the temple area is not always accessible or is not always accessible for everyone or in the same way. So, for instance, we notice that with Exodus, that there are areas of increasing holiness that only a few people can can go to, can, can trespass into. And we also notice that in, in Eden we have these three areas and that one area is supposed to extend at the expense of another. But with Jesus there was no separation. We noted that very distinctively that Jesus is the temple is accessible to everyone. And then later in new creation well, there is a dividing line. Not everybody will be in that new temple. And we also can see very, very clearly that, that kingdom and temple are interconnected. The, the universe as God's dominion, which he creates as a temple. The garden, his dominion, which is a temple. Kingdom of priests with the Israelites, Jesus preaching the new creation, the kingdom that is a temple kingdom, and finally at the end, a new creation, which is God's dominion. So that leads me now to ask the second question and answer that. Namely, how do we need then, given that Jesus is preaching the new creational kingdom, that is a kingdom in priestly terms, how do we then need to view the church within that context? How do we need to imagine what the purpose, the nature, the overall shape of the church is within this new creational kingdom? And I, I think a good illustration to, to picture this is to imagine a diamond. A beautifully cut diamond. Imagine that this is the new creational kingdom. A beautifully cut diamond. And when you turn it and look at different facets of this cut diamond, you see a slightly different thing. And if you turn it again, you have a different perspective. 
you see another aspect. And so what I'm suggesting is that if we imagine Jesus' new creation kingdom as a beautiful diamond, we can discern, depending on where we look at, different aspects that help us to understand how the church fits into that. And today I would look at two facets that in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul describes. Or, well, what I understand he is describing. He is not using my terminology. So in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, the book of Ephesians among... uh, Others, like Colossians, Philippians, is an epistle that Paul wrote while he was at house arrest, in most likely in Rome. That's kind of where his journey ends in the book of Acts. And from there, he corresponds with different churches. He either founded or nurtured. And one of that church is the church in Ephesus. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he puts to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. So what I'm suggesting is that we look, when we look at our diamond we can see one aspect, one facet that communicates that the church is the new humanity, that part of the new creation kingdom, Jesus is preaching a new humanity. And this new humanity starts with him. When he died on the cross and judged the world, judged the fallen world, both Jews and Gentiles, and rose again, A new creation started with him to be the first new man, new Adam. And becoming, through that, the progenitor of a new humanity. The Apostle Paul writes this here nicely in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, 
one moment, please. Verse uh, 45. It says, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is Christ, a life-giving spirit. And so when God formed in the garden the first human being, he breathed the breath of life into this body, and this body came to life. So in the same way, when Jesus reappears to the disciples in John chapter 20, he breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he gives them life. This is a continuation of the idea that Jesus um, explained in John chapter 3 in the discussion with Nicodemus. You must be born again. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, which means born from above, namely born by the Spirit. And so as, this, as, as Christ has been resurrected, the Holy Spirit brings alive a new humanity and overcomes the fragmented nature of, of humanity. And it's not just fragmented, it's open hostility. When God created the first human being in the garden, he created this first human being, Adam, who is to represent the whole human race. And then out of this one person, he makes another one, namely the woman, and they unite again to become one, you know, signifying the oneness and unity of humanity. And so that's how... This beautiful image of the garden ends at, at the end um, of chapter 2. But we know it didn't last. It broke down. It fragmented. And from there, then it fragmented to man against man. You know, kind kills Abel. And it gets worse, 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 worse. And this fragmentation, hostility, climaxes after the Tower of Babel with humanity dispersed around the whole world in all kinds of different cultures, languages, ethnic groups, totally separated from each other, and worst, totally separated from God. So at the end of, not at the end, but in 11, chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, maybe verse 25 or 26, before the Abraham story starts, yeah, humanity is done. They're completely separated from God. There is, it appears to be there's no hope. But of course, we know God starts then with Abraham. And in Jesus, a new humanity comes into existence that overcomes all that. Now, how can we imagine this to be applicable for our church here and now? I want to illustrate this um, with something I experienced as a young man. Uh, one of my relatives emigrated in the 1960s to South Africa, and after I was done with school in Germany in 1988, I spent two months in South Africa, most of the time in Johannesburg. And as I was a very ex you know, inquisitive and explorative uh, young man, I used the time there to uh, do maybe things that would be no longer to be considered safe in our time. But I wandered around through the city and explored all kinds of things. And one of the things I did is I went to church. 
On one Sunday morning, I went to the German Lutheran Church in the neighborhood where my relative lived in Hillbrook. Now, this neighborhood was once a very white and um, he called it a, a yuppie place of young European immigrants. But by the time I came in 88, despite apartheid, it was called a gray area. There were actually more non-white people living than white people. A very diverse place. Well, I went to this German Lutheran church Sunday morning. And I was sitting there in this church. I thought, no, this feels like small town Germany. Everybody speaks German. Everybody looks German. Everybody, you know, behaves German. So, yeah, I'm here in small town Germany somewhere, you know, I don't know, in Bavaria or in lower Saxony. Oh, cool. Well, when I stepped out, I, of course, quickly realized I'm not in small town Germany. I'm in Hillbro, Johannesburg, a very diverse place where actually only a few Germans lived, like my relative. Most of the people who attended the church did not live there. Maybe at some point, but, but they all came with their cars and after the service drove away to the suburbs wherever they lived. And so this congregation had no resemblance to this neighborhood. Well, a few years ago, I remembered that, and I thought, you know, let's, I want to know what happened to this church, where it still exists. And actually, it still exists. But for some reason, maybe the Germans dispersed completely or assimilated into um, the English-speaking culture or something. But for whatever reason, I noticed that they changed. They had their the names of their leaders and the boards, and I quickly could, could see, well, there are a lot of very non-German names on their board list. And I also looked into the activities. And it turns out that they opened up to the community. They were offering their building. They are offering services. They tried. This was my interpretation. As maybe they had to change to include the community, not to be separate but to include the community. And that's what I'm suggesting. Of course, if there is only one group around, of course, then, of course, the church just looks like this one group. But I'm very thankful for us here in our evangelical free church that we have a diverse group of people coming together, which in some ways reflects the changing nature of Wainwright and maybe the changing nature of Alberta and Canada, that we have different um, people from different ethnic backgrounds, language backgrounds, social backgrounds, people from all walks of life coming here together to worship on the basis of Jesus who is the progenitor of a new humanity. That we can come together from wherever we originally come from to become one body and one congregation. And I only want to bring to your mind, because we are studying the book of Revelation in our small group, that at several times in this book, you, we get a glimpse into the worship that is going on in the heavenlies right now. And this is a multi-ethnic 
worship. People from all kinds of tribes, nations, tongues, worshiping at this moment in the presence of God. All right, we look now at the first facet of our diamond, of our beautifully cut diamond that represents the new creational kingdom. Now, if we turn that a little bit, we can see a different aspect, which in our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul also comments on, namely that the church is the new temple. That you're a new temple that is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Building into a holy temple to the Lord. But this is not a temple built and made out of brick and stone. In John chapter 4, in the story with a woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus is telling the woman, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, namely Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So what Jesus is implying here, that this that he's building a temple that is not made of brick and stone, but is a sphere, a spiritual sphere. And that is where we are built in. In a parallel passage in to the, our passage in Ephesians in the first epistle of Peter, and I want to read this here as well because I think he put it very, very um, beautifully. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, namely the cornerstone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then later on in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Well, this is actually a quotation from the book of Exodus, what God intended that Israelites to be that is now applied to the church. But yeah, we are built into as living stones into this building Jesus started to build. And the Holy Spirit dwells in this building. Well, where did the Holy Spirit come from? That may be an odd question, but maybe you can think of it in this way. When Moses completed the tabernacle, at the end of the book of Exodus, the, it says that the glory of God came down and filled the tabernacle. Well, there is a parallel event when this happened in the New Testament, namely at Pentecost. When the believers were together and fire came down in form of tongues and, and, and taking over the whole 
room. And God's Holy Spirit visibly started to dwell among the believers, among this new temple. And just as in the Garden of Eden where the first home couple was supposed to extend the garden, while well, the idea is in the book of Acts, with starting in Jerusalem, then Samaria, Galilee, to the end of the world, that this temple that started there at Pentecost expands to comprise more and more and include more and more people and trespass boundaries like from Jew to Gentile, from, from a small area to, to a large area into the, to the Roman Empire. And so, of course, now the question is, what is our role in this temple? Well, I think there are two roles we can distinguish, a collective one and an individual one. And the collective one, we can, we can easily see the worship that we are doing, that we're doing also right now, but also to offer forgiveness. Just remember with Jesus as the mobile temple who come to offer forgiveness to people. And what, what I remember um, very, or what came to mind when I was preparing for this was Pastor Marvin's um, last message to us when he mentioned that the most important reason why people don't come to church is that they don't want to be judged. You know, I was thinking, you know, this defeats the whole purpose of this temple that is accessible to everyone. Because what we are supposed to offer is forgiveness to people. And not through this judgment actually create a fence that people that won't come to this church, or not just to our church, but in church um, in general. And with these great commandments at the end of the Gospels, where Jesus sends out the disciples you know, to preach his, in his name, forgiveness for sins, or to baptize uh, new people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and make disciples. Well, this is another priestly office we have. Another priestly task we have as a corporate way or as a, as a congregation. Well, and at the same time, we have an individual purpose within this temple. Namely, in order that this temple really can function, that this can function to its full extent... Every one of us plays a role. And that can be any role, not just specific, but every one of us as a living stone who works as priest in this temple has a contribution to make. Well, and that brings me, brings me to... Remember our new constitution. Because our new constitution actually reflects the two ideas I have been presenting to you, these two facets, namely the new humanity and the new temple. Now, our new constitution, as you notice, we have now men and women as elders, and we have men and women in our church council overcoming this old, old Divide. We are not allowing that fallen fragmentation of humanity defines us in, as we are serving as priests. And at the same time, you notice if you read through our constitution, our vision statement, 
philosophy of ministry purpose statement that this centers all around what I've been describing as temple work. Making disciples, bringing everyone to, into, into ministry for the full potential, regardless of what that is. And that, of course, spins in, into another facet, which I'll then talk about next time, namely individual gifts, how we can make that contribution. But that is already looking into next Sunday. But for now, I would like to um, close in a way. Last time I had a, a charge of us to think of how we can how, take the example of Jesus being the temple is accessible to everyone, how we can take that into our ministry. Well, my simple request for you is fill out these questionnaires which we have been distributing. We have been distributing by email. They're in the mailboxes. They're here uh, on the seats. Please fill them out prayerfully. Because both of these questionnaires, one for the search committee and one for general of our ministry, will help us to discern where we are, so to speak, as a new temple of God. Where we are at, how to move forward, how that informs us as we are searching for a new pastor and... Someone is searching for a new church, a pastor searching for a new church, but also how we can involve everyone and allow everyone to make a contribution that we can function to our full effectiveness. All right, so today we looked at our diamond of the new creational kingdom and we looked at two facets. So we turned it a little bit and we did see a new humanity and we did see a new temple. Well, next Sunday, we will look at three more. And then hopefully we can see a, a greater picture of how our church fits into God's unfolding kingdom.